Fabian Accominotti is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Wisconsin Madison. His research broadly lies at the intersections of cultural and economic sociology and stratification. In this episode, we discuss his co-authored publication, The Architecture of Status Hierarchies, Variations in Structure and Why They Matter for Inequality. Hi, Fabian, and welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here today, and I'm very excited to know about you and about the work you've been doing. Uh, so to get us started, I'd just like to know a little bit about yourself, about your academic background, and more specifically about your interest in stratification and hierarchy as areas of research. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me here. Um, this is a great honor. Um, I'm, yeah, so I'm Fabiana Caminati. I'm an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, and essentially my work, uh, I would say, studies the, the construction of status hierarchies, as you mentioned, and, and, um, and how they sustain inequality in society. This is what I'm excited about. Essentially, I kind of, you know, I, I have a feeling that essentially the study of inequality and how it's sustained in society is essentially the very core issue of sociology, but it took me maybe a kind of circuitous path to get there and to get my kind of angle and approach to this question. Um, uh, because uh, I did essentially my PhD on the art world of all things and on the construction of artistic value in the art world, which may seem remote from the idea of status hierarchies and inequality, but um, I think is not. I mean, I was not, I guess I was not um, always um, as clear um, on how I would relate to these ideas, but retrospectively it makes a lot of sense so essentially I was interested in the art world because this is a world you know um really ripe with inequality in the outcome of different uh, actors artists and where essentially the value of these artists and so essentially the inequality between them is highly socially constructed so I guess my hunch in selecting the art world as um case study uh, was that this would offer a kind of very uh, interesting, pure in some respect case for investigating mechanisms that would generate hierarchies of value between artists and therefore um, inequality between them. So this was this was the thing. So um, how uh, uh, different, uh, value beliefs, beliefs in the value of different artists were constructed and how they sustained uh, unequal outcomes for these different artists. And essentially this case of the art world, which um, um, I am actually uh, uh, working on still right now and, and, and turning the dissertation into a book about this, uh, served as a, a matrix for thinking about the construction of status hierarchies, the construction of, of hierarchies of perceived worthiness, if you will, um, among people and how they uh, result in inequality between individuals. So this is essentially where I come from, if 
this is a question you're asking me. And then, you know, the, the kind of idea is that this is essentially, I think, the, the beauty and the, the power of a, a case you're deeply curious about. It, it generates, you know, you always get back to it and it generates ideas that then travel to entirely different worlds. So currently, for example, I'm working on a project where I study how the, 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 the way we construct hierarchies of merit or performance in, in organizations um, can fuel inequality in the rewards received by different employees in these organizations. And, you know, substantively, this is really, it may seem really remote from um, the art world, but on the, on the, on the level of theory and, and the kind of mechanisms that I'm uh, working with, um, I at least, and I hope others, uh, can, can also do the same, uh, see uh, a, a deep continuity between these different objects, yeah. Definitely, right? In fact, you know, I think uh, it reminds me of this question which I come across really often, even in casual conversations, which is, you know, how does someone really define what good art and what bad art is, right? Because to the viewer, I mean, I think, you know, it depends a lot on the eye who is seeing the art. And of course, a more experienced eye in that sense, like would tend to be in more critical, you know, uh, uh, like a thinker in that sense, right? But, you know, I think a lot of um, commentary and critique also says, right, like I could take a blank canvas and, you know, just have like a dot on it and call it art, you know? So, and in fact, you know, I think a lot of like different um, art movements have their own different styles and different, you know, like perceptions of art. So in that sense, I think I'm just a bit interested to know a bit as to how really the status is defined. You know, is it more along the lines of social status or the content of art itself or, you know, like how exactly, uh, you know, is that is that defined? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, obviously, the, the the issue of the the intrinsic value of art is a complicated one. Um, but from a sociological perspective, what's interesting is that I think we can generally assume that a large fraction of the value of the perceived value, if you will, of art is um, socially constructed. Um, meaning that, you know, some actors are involved in making uh, 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 some pieces into valuable ones um, and that, you know, nothing in the pieces themselves uh, commands value uh, in and of itself. And I mean, I'm not entirely ruling out the idea that something in the pieces themselves might actually uh, uh, command this value, but the what, what I'm interested in is that essentially, even if there's a little kernel of thing that is essentially intrinsic to the art, I don't know, some kind of beauty or some kind of universal um, uh, aesthetic quality that turns out into good art, it's pretty undeniable that a large fraction of the value is socially constructed. And so this being a little bit of a given to me, I think what, what is really interesting then is to study the specific mechanisms essentially to go beyond the surface of saying oh the value is socially constructed uh fine i mean okay we could accept this premise we're sociologists after all um but i think what's interesting is to 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 get into the precise mechanisms and to try to maybe delineate uh you know a, a little typology of mechanisms whereby this value is constructed and so um, this is something um, I like to think of in terms of, you know, um, th three big things in particular, which are essentially the one mechanism whereby value is constructed is essentially what I call 
I guess, credentialing. So essentially the fact that some authoritative uh, arbiter of taste, for example, um, is going to, you know, uh, uh, provide a piece of art or an artist with a stamp of, of value and essentially decide that this person has value. And, and because essentially the arbiter of taste or the judge of, 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 of the value has this kind of authority, the, the kind of imprimatur that they're uh, providing the work of art um, is indeed uh, enhancing the value of the art. So it's essentially it's this kind of providing an artist or a piece of, um, uh, 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 of art with a stamp of, um, of quality um, that, that gives it value, lends it value. So that's one thing, essentially the credentialing mechanism. And then there's another, you know, going back to what you were saying about different movements having different styles and different, they, they don't just have different styles. I think they have different criteria for what is good art. And essentially, each style can be perceived as a set of criteria for what good art is. And um, particularly in the period that I um, have been studying, which is uh, modernism, um, you see um, essentially a, a, a succession of artistic movements whose uh, um, mission it seems to be to impose new criteria, um, you know, uh, uh, successively one after the other for what is good art criteria that also have the effect of updating the criteria of the prior movements and the, the prior um, uh, wave of aesthetic uh, revolution, if you will. And, and so this is a different mechanism for creating value for art. It's, it's not just, you know, an actor um, providing an object with a stamp of quality. It's just defining what quality is or means in a way that is going to have an effect on what is going to be judged good or bad. I mean, you know, if, if the criteria change, obviously the hierarchy of what is valuable and, and worthwhile is going to change too. So that's a different mechanism, which I refer to usually as a mechanism of qualification. Essentially, it's saying what in art is good. What are the criteria for um, good or valuable or, or worthwhile art? Um, and, and, and this is a very powerful, actually, mechanism for creating value. Essentially, you say, well, you know, um, what matters is, is being... I don't know, I'm gonna say abstract as opposed to figurative or, um, and then, you know, all of a sudden, like all the, if, if, you, if you manage to impose this new criterion as the one, uh, all of a sudden, obviously, all the abstract art becomes valuable and all the non-abstract um, gets devalued. Um, so that's another way of creating value uh, for, for art. Um, yeah, I mean, so, you know, these are examples of these mechanisms that I was uh, interested in getting into in, in greater detail um, to, to understand what, um, what, what we mean when we say that value is socially constructed, yeah. Certainly, yeah, and, you know, I think to the point of, you know, uh, like the mechanism of, of the qualifications, as you mentioned, right, how, you know, there is, 
you know, this one sort of authority figure who, you know, um, imposes the stamp on the piece of art, right, you know, and says, you know, like, this is good art, this is bad art. I think, you know, this whole idea of, um, you know, status, um, you know, in, in artwork itself, I think is very closely tied to the idea of capital, right? Because, you know, of course, right, like you would expect that, you know, artwork uh, that is higher up in the hierarchy would have greater, you know, um, social or, you know, or like cultural, you know, like capital in that sense. So, yeah, I think, you know, like along those lines, I'm, I'm a bit curious to know, um, you know, ask like whether, say, if there is any new art piece or any new artist who enters the market, right? Are they supposed to, you know, follow these rules exactly as it is to, you know, be up there on the hierarchy or do they have the flexibility to, you know, like play around with it, and, you know, and like challenge like a lot of like this hierarchy and, and in that sense, gain capital, you know, um, or like, you know, that isn't already, you know, like defined in the hierarchy itself. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think you would hear you would want to probably um, historicize a little bit the, the, the answer to this question. So I think, you know, that there used to be uh, in the art world up to the mid to late 19th century, um, a fairly shared set of aesthetic criteria that would define the value of an artwork and an artist as consequence. There was a hierarchy of genres that were more or less valuable. So, you know, doing religious painting was more valuable. I mean, you know, religious painting was more valuable than uh, still life. For example, there were also criteria based on just the display of skill by the artists, uh, their uh, command of uh, color, of perspective, and so on and so forth. And then you got this shift, which I think is a pretty major one that we still, you know, live with the consequences of, which is the shift toward, you know, modernity in uh, art, where. Um, now you, you don't have this kind of shared understanding of what good or bad art is or something you know, a little bit set in stone that defines what good or bad art is. Uh, and that is essentially uh, backed up by um, academic institutions and even you know, state-backed um, uh, artistic institutions. And now you got a more um, kind of uh, 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 fuzzy kind of world where the, the value of art is essentially rooted in the value of the vision of the artist. And therefore, uh, all of this value becomes all of a sudden very subjective and is rooted in essentially the innovativeness, the novelty of the vision of the artist. And as a consequence, um, what is valuable is not so much what uh, obeys certain standards for quality, but is something that um, is able to distinguish itself from what existed previously um, and to maybe set its own criteria for what value is. Um, and so in this world, which essentially I think was uh, ushered in by, uh, you know, but roughly by the impressionists, um, and, and, and that, you know, we still essentially live in, um, uh, 
you know, uh, the, the, the game for the artist is essentially about um, 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 impo trying to impose a new vision and the value of this new vision. And, and therefore you want to do something relatively new. You know, there's a, the rules of the game are that you want to play this game of imposing a new vision. So there you need to comply a little bit with some rules. Um, but at the same time, the rules imply that there's no substantive rule that you're following in your art for making it good. The rule is, the rule you should follow is you should break up the substantive rules. And um, this is essentially still, I think, the game in town as far as art is concerned. Um, you know, from a kind of uh, 10,000 feet view, this is still very much um, the, 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 the case today, I think. Yeah. For sure, yeah. And uh, yeah, I think, you know, in fact, it's, it's sort of like to backtrack a bit, right, and ask you a little bit more specifically about the title of your publication, which is uh, The Aesthetics of Hierarchy, you know, because here I don't think it's so much about art, but it's much more about hierarchy itself and about, you know, the aesthetics of that, right? So, yeah, so I'm just a bit curious to know as to what the title means in that sense and like what exactly the word aesthetics implies. Yeah, yeah. Um, so essentially, I'd say I mean, we probably want to go back a little bit to, um, you know, what we've been talking about when we've been talking about about art and and um, kind of try to think about it. Uh, essentially, we're talking about um, hierarchies of perceived worthiness, or essentially status hierarchies. Uh, you know. Uh, if you define status as um, this kind of fundamental dimension of social stratification, as per you know, Max Weber, you know, those wealth, power, and status, the three big dimensions of social stratification um, in, in economy and society, um, uh, status is essentially uh, uh, the value other people accord you in a certain social context, if you will. Um, and what's interesting with status, you know, in contrast to power or wealth, um, it's that um, it's, it's not really something that can be seized, but it's more the result of other actors uh, bestowing you with um, esteem or respect or recognition um, and so on and status essentially. Um, so it's essentially, uh, you know, something that is attributed to you by others. That's what makes it very different from um, other um, dimensions of social stratification such as wealth or power, which you could grab essentially. Um, and, and, um, What's and then you know the next step a little bit is to think about status. So status is this value other people accord to a certain actor, but you could think then of status hierarchies as the kind of matrix uh, upon which people draw uh, when it comes to make these status attributions, right? Um, so essentially, these status hierarchies are. Um, um, systems, if you will, of relations of perceived social superiority, 
equality or inferiority that people perceive among others, right? Um, and um, so it, it's, it's, it's a matrix people have in themselves that make them see certain people as higher up than certain others. Um, and, you know, these status hierarchies are, can be based on multiple things. Um, they can be based on deeply held cultural beliefs about um, the value of certain attributes, such as, you know, gender. So, you know, um, status hierarchy based on gender that usually uh, places men above women in the deeply held cultural beliefs that people have. It could be based on uh, status beliefs or cultural beliefs about race, about social class background, and so on and so forth. So it's things that are not particularly uh, natural or desirable grounds for status, actually. Um, they can also be based, and this is a little bit the, the ideal of modern societies, uh, status can be based on, um, and status hierarchies can be based on um, perceived differences in achievement or in, in um, I don't know, educational credentials, um, occupational positions, um, athletic performance, whatever, um, you know, things that are not as ascribed as gender or race or social class background, but something that are already achieved, right? So, you know, this is, this is where status uh, hierarchies are rooted in like this system, systems of, of um, uh, perceived um, uh, relations of superiority, equality, inferiority between things are rooted in, in these, these very things. And so um, back to the aesthetics of hierarchy, um, my, my idea is that, you know, in, in, a, in a lot of um, uh, contemporary settings, right, um, where status is supposed to measure um, merit or ability or uh, performance, for example, uh, or aptitude. Um, the, you know, these uh, constructs are not easily observed. And, you know, unlike gender or unlike race or unlike maybe social class background, I don't know, which are really easily observed and actually which are can be hard to unsee when you see them as um, status markers. Um, performance, merit, uh, you know, it's, you know, it's, it, it needs to be measured. It needs to be evaluated before it can serve as a basis for um, sorting people according to their uh, relative perceived worthiness. And so essentially status is acquired uh, when status is approached as merit or um, performance. Status is essentially the outcome of um, people going through uh, evaluation systems that, um, that, that, that evaluate their worthiness, right? So these systems can be, you know, um, you could think of, 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 of um, 
standardized tests in uh, in in education uh, you could think of entry exams into professions you could think of uh, performance evaluations in the workplace i mean all of these evaluation systems are um uh, engines for generating status hierarchies uh, based on this dimension of merit, for lack of a better word, um, that, 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 that is so crucial to modern societies, I would say. Um, and so what I think is interesting about, about this is that, you know, these evaluation systems um when they measure or uh evaluate merit or performance um they have a tendency to obfuscate the um the, the kind of ambiguity or messiness or fuzziness or multidimensionality if you will of any actual occurrence of, of merit or performance. So essentially, you know, these systems, they don't just create um, orderings of people by their merit, but they also create, if you think of rankings, for example, or grades, or, you know, typically your score on a standardized test, but also, I don't know, your, your, your credit worthiness, your credit score. Um, they create hierarchies of perceived worthiness that have oftentimes an orderliness to them that is a little bit artificial. So they, they inject artificial orderliness into the hierarchies of worthiness that they create. So for example, you know, if you were to um, uh, think of performance evaluations in the workplace. Um, you're gonna decide that you know, some employees are exceptional, some employees are proficient, some employees are acceptable. Um, and by doing this, you're gonna rank all of these employees on this very simple scale. You're gonna give them a very simple, crisp, very clear cut um, characterization of their performance that is actually going to er erase uh, the complexity of any performance, like uh, the fact that you know it's it's very difficult to summarize the performance of an employee as oh this is exceptional. Well, you know it's exceptional, but uh, maybe it's it's exceptional at something, but not as good at something else. Um, you're going to essentially collapse all of this under a single kind of um, measure or rating or. And this is what I call the aesthetics of hierarchy, like essentially a lot of ranking systems, uh, scoring systems have a tendency to um, turn um, hierarchies of worthiness into something artificially orderly, neat, crisp. So, um, uh, you know, that has aesthetic properties in the sense, not in the sense that they are particularly beautiful or, or pleasant to watch, but in the sense that um, they are perceived by outside observers 
as having certain properties. So essentially these properties of orderliness or of, of, of uh, artificial clarity. Um, and I think this is interesting, like how evaluation systems um, um, vacuum up, if you will, uh, messiness in how we perceive hierarchies of worthiness and turn these hierarchies of worthiness in how we perceive them into things that are uh, uh, that have certain aesthetic properties such as this clarity, this brightness, this orderliness. Um, yeah. For sure, yeah, and I think you know it, it definitely did. Uh, you know, I think help establish a context there, right? And yeah, you know, I think um, the thing about status as well is that you know you see it everywhere. I think it's it's a very you know like a universal thing, right? Of course, as as you mentioned, you know, as to how you know the whole attribution of status is you know is something that you know is is everywhere. And I think in that sense, you know, I think something I'd like to know a little bit about is that you also use the word architecture to really speak about you know, how status is, you know, constructed and defined. So I'd just like to know a little bit as to, you know, what the word architecture means in this context and how status architecture differs across uh, contexts as well. Right, yes. So, you know, um, definitely, uh, 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 you know, following up a little bit on this idea of uh, um, the um, aesthetics of hierarchy, um, the you know, status scholars have generally been interested in, in, in knowing whether, you know, having one attribute that is, um, uh, that is status worthy uh, makes you better off in society. So essentially whether uh, when people for, you know, an equal level of quality, people who are um, men, are perceived as actually better quality uh, at a certain task um, than people who are women or things like that. Um, and, and so this is essentially focusing on how status positions, so whether you occupy a higher or lower position in a status hierarchy, um, shape your outcomes, right? Um, what I've been interested in, this is in joint work with, um, Mike Sader and Frida Lin uh, from the University of uh, Iowa. Um, we've been interesting in saying, yeah, yeah. Um, there are also uh, properties of status hierarchies um, that are, you know, features of the hierarchy itself of the whole thing, um, independent of individual. Uh, status positions uh, that actors occupy within these hierarchies. Um, and so this is what we call these kind of characteristics of status hierarchies. Uh, this is what we call the architecture of status hierarchies. So for example, status hierarchies can be more or less clear or ambiguous. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum. So you can think of a status hierarchy, I don't know, a ranking being a typical status hierarchy as being very clear cut, essentially where every unit can be placed very unambiguously in the status hierarchy. Um, 
relative to every other unit. So every unit is either higher up, lower down, or equal to every other unit. You could think of, I don't know, um, university rankings, for example. And you're like, okay, well, you know, we've got Harvard up there, and then we go all the way down. And this hierarchy could be presented as very clear where it's, it's you know, in, in the ranking itself, in its aesthetic, if you will, and how it appears to uh, an onlooker, um, the, uh, the order is super clear. But you could imagine a more ambiguous status hierarchy where um, it's not very clear how different units rank relative to one another. Uh, so for example, the same ranking could be accompanied by kind of confidence intervals around you know, the position of every university in the ranking saying, well, you know, Harvard is between one and five. And then down from Harvard is probably, I don't know, MIT is between one and six. And then, I don't know, Stanford is between one and eight. And then you got, a, you got, a, you got an ambiguous hierarchy because you don't really know uh, whether Harvard is higher up compared to MIT and Stanford, you don't really know. Uh, and you know, all the way down to the lower ranks in the hierarchy. Uh, and so, you know, this is a property of the hierarchy itself of how it's constructed. Uh, is it constructed to project a sense of, you know, everything is very tidy and very orderly and we know where everyone stands relative to everyone else, or is it constructed to convey the sense that it's ambiguous or, yeah. So th this is one example of, a, of a, uh, one uh, dimension of the architecture of status hierarchies there, there greater or lesser clarity or ambiguity, right? We could think of another dimension, which is what we call their greater or lesser verticality versus horizontality. Uh, so the idea that, you know, hierarchy is is more vertical when it has a finer differentiation of status positions within the hierarchy so essentially you've got many 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 different status positions that uh, are ranked along the hierarchy this is a more horizontal hierarchy which essentially would have two big groups you think a hierarchy of students and based on their grades where you'd have students that have A's and students that have B's. And, you know, students can be in one or, I don't know, a kind of pass-fail thing. It's a very flat hierarchy. I mean, you know, pass is better than fail. But then within pass and fail, we don't already go very deep into distinguishing between who's better, who's worse. There's a kind of broad category there. And so essentially the hierarchy is not very differentiated in terms of its, its rungs. And so it's more compressed and more horizontal, if you will. So that's another dimension of the architecture of, of status hierarchy, whether they're very vertical, I don't know, for example, the French grading system, which I'm familiar with because I grew up with, within this system, you know, ranks everyone on a scale of one, of zero, zero actually to 20. And, you know, you can occupy each position, each unit on this scale, which gives a pretty fine grained and pretty vertical hierarchy versus a the American system, I don't know, the letter grades, A, B, C, D, 
um, and then it's it's more collapsed, it's more horizontal, yeah. So the, these would be examples of the architecture of status hierarchies, yeah. For sure, yeah. Kitty's like with me and with a lot of other you know, people uh, in, you know, like the sociology field, at least from what I understand, we tend to use words like stratification, inequality, status and hierarchy interchangeably. Uh, so just like some clarification regarding, you know, are these words, you know, really like different and like what exactly, you know, like the differences are, at least in the context of the research that you've been doing. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, um, you could think of, um, I mean, you know, I think the notion of hierarchy, um, is, can be used to denote inequality, actually, and sometimes it, it can be used a little bit interchangeably with inequality, but in what I've been actually doing, I would say that the notion of inequality just describes the unequal distribution of some results, right? And the notion of stratification is fairly synonymous to this one. Essentially, you know, people can be uh, stratified based on their endowment with a certain uh, type of resource. And in that respect, you know, uh, wealth, income can be described as, you know, um, defining distributions uh, and inequality out there. And you can essentially order people based on um, how much income they earn, how much wealth they possess, and define inequality as a property of the distribution of these um, resources. And actually, you can actually um, define an inequality of status in the same way. I mean, you know, status is different from wealth, uh, income, uh, power, because it is uh, not seized, uh, but attributed by others. But, you know, you can totally um, measure the unequal distribution of status out there, essentially the unequal distribution of how much respect or esteem or status people receive from others. Um, and then you would essentially have uh, an index of status inequality where, you know, um, you got some people that are very, very popular, very esteemed, very uh, prestigious, everyone looks up to them. Um, and people who don't receive a lot of status attributions. Um, so, you know, any resource is unequally distributed and, um, and inequality uh, usually measures the degree of uh, this unequal distribution. Hierarchy, at least as far as status is concerned, to me is a slightly different thing. It's, it's something that is um, a little bit internalized in people and it's a, a way people have to perceive relations of superiority, equality, inferiority among others. So it's not so much the distribution of how much people possess, but it's a prism that people apply to the world out there um, in seeing others as superior, inferior. 
And so it is not something that describes the distribution of a resource, but something that is a cultural schema, if you will, that people have deep inside that makes them look at the world out there, at others out there in a hierarchical way. So, you know, and, and status hierarchies, that's a little bit the, the, the complexity of this is essentially status hierarchies. If, if wealth were a status marker, for example, in a society, a status hierarchy could be based on wealth. And, you know, people would see people as superior, inferior, based on how much wealth they possess. Uh, and this would be a, a wealth-based status hierarchy, if you will, um, which is different from wealth inequality, which just describes how much wealth um, different people possess and how unequal the distribution of wealth actually is uh, out there in society. Um, so yeah, um, I guess here I'm just trying to be a little bit specific about hierarchy and how it's different from inequality um, and how it's particularly suited, I think, hierarchy to the notion of, of status because it is a thing that it rests on you know, the perception of relations of superiority, inferiority. So it rests on people's perceptions of the world, which is really what uh, uh, is so specific about status uh, as a resource. Um, I hope that makes sense. Uh, certainly, yeah. And in fact, again, like we tend to use these words like interchangeably. So of course, it always helps to, you know, have some context and know how exactly like they're defined. And, uh, you know, I think a final point I'd like to come to is that like I'm pretty sure as you already know, the social sciences and the natural sciences are really different, right? Because because unlike the natural sciences, in the social sciences, we are studying human beings. So of course, there is our own um, experiences that often come in. So I'd just like to know if you have ever felt that your background or identity or experiences has ever influenced the course of your research, either in terms of your access to data or, uh, or interviews or the course of your narration or any such factors along those lines. Uh, right. I mean, this is interesting. Yes, uh, this is a good question. I would say, to me, I got the feeling that um, it's it's very weird. I, I guess I was a sociologist early on, um, and I actually didn't really know why I was a sociologist starting off. Um, and I guess I had the feeling that being a sociologist was, or studying sociology was a way of studying the, the kind of cross-section of the world out there. Essentially, you could do anything by being a sociologist. You didn't have to choose. It was one way of not choosing what you wanted to study, essentially. So that's where I came from. And I think to me, what, how, you know, my personal circumstances defined my uh, research interests, if you will, um, have to do with how I gradually came to try and unpack what was the core of the sociological question. You know, being a sociologist, I was, I had to grapple with, oh, what is the key sociological question out there? And gradually I get, I got to be the, the, this kind of notion that, oh, what is really the, the intriguing question that is motivating a lot of sociology is why is it that in 
kind of democratic societies that are a little bit premised on the notion of equality among people, um, we accept large differences in outcomes. Uh, we accept also large differences in, in, in how we perceive the worthiness of different people. And so this kind of realization, so essentially I was being trained as a sociologist, but then gradually I, I got to ask myself because I didn't quite know why I was doing sociology. I, I had to ask myself, what is sociology? What is the core question? And these seem to be the core question, like the question of why do we have inequality in the world, in societies that pretend or purport to be based on principles of equality? And I think this is a little bit what defined all of my interest in, oh, how do, where do status hierarchies even come from? How do we come to see different people as unequally worthy or valuable? Uh, how does that sustain their unequal outcomes and so on and so forth? So that would be my answer to this question. So, and then I guess the, the choice of topics or of case studies for addressing these kind of questions was more of a strategic, uh, a, a succession of strategic choices of case studies that seemed to be particularly suited to unearthing interesting mechanisms that would somehow speak to this issue of how do you get from equality to inequality, how do you get from equality to hierarchy, and so on and so forth. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. It's interesting, you know, I think definitely that way. Um, you know, because like whenever, you know, I, I ask this question, you know, like other speakers in the show, right, I think we always discuss how subjectivity is actually a strength because, you know, like you're able to make sense of like the data, right, you know, and like see yourself in it. And I think we can't really, you know, like remove ourselves from our objects, um, you know, of, of study that way. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's about it from my end. So thank you so much, Fabian, for coming on the show. It was a pleasure speaking to you today. Well, you know, good luck with the podcast, uh, and and uh, I, I look forward to. Well, I, I don't. I wouldn't say I look forward to listening to myself, but I look forward to listening to the other speakers, which I haven't yet gotten to yet. But um, but, but 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 I'm very excited to do so soon. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do subscribe or follow. You can also follow us on Twitter or Instagram at the handle DTRRH podcast for further updates.